I kind of laughed, but like in the back of my mind, I was going, you're about to find Jesus in a different kind of rehab. You keep it up. Like that was so mad. But that's the response of people, right? You're, you're either going to find a response of individuals that are already emotionally cut off and they're going to mock, or you're going to have those that are emotionally open that are going to be asking, what does this mean? And so, yeah, we may go out and we may share the gospel and we may go door to door and we may interact with people that we work with. And yeah, there are going to be people that are just emotionally cut off. They're going to mock and chastise and kind of push you aside. But that means there are also people in our communities that are truly trying to make sense of their life today. And they're trying to figure out what does this all mean? What's the purpose? What is God doing here? And it's our job to help them make application. It's our job to help them make sense of what they're experiencing today. These people here, there's got to be a ton of questions about what they're witnessing. So what does Peter do? He, he says, listen, he says, you guys have been reading the prophet Joel, right? It's the Passover. They've been in the scrolls. He said, you've been reading through the prophet Joel. This thing that you're witnessing today is exactly what Joel was prophesying about. It's the exact same thing. And you know what? You've been longing for this day. You've been desiring this moment. And what we're selling now is that Jesus is the fulfillment of that desire. What Peter's doing is he's using the word to show them that everything they've desired, Jesus is now fulfilling. 
every single person that you know that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus has this huge emotional hole in their self that they're trying to fill up with something else. There's this huge emotional hole that they're filling up with everything but Christ, but only Jesus can satisfy. Romans 8, 28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, which means Jesus won't, Jesus won't stop at anything to redeem those he's chosen. He'll stop at nothing. Nothing is off limits. Your marriage isn't off limits. Your children isn't off limits. Your health aren't off limits. Nothing is off limits to God. He will use any means possible to draw you into a relationship with him. And it seems like such a terrifying prospect. But at the same time, it's God's mercy. That he would discipline us in a way that we would suffer temporarily so that we could be saved eternally. It doesn't look like mercy in the moment, but God is working all things together for those that he loves. So now Peter goes on and he starts to go right after this emotional barrier that they've put up. Verse 22 through 24, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What is he saying? He's saying, look at the evidence of Jesus' life. He didn't do this in a closet. He didn't do this in a back alley. He said, God himself has testified to his glory. He did these miraculous wonders in your midst. You've seen Jesus' life. You've seen the evidence that he is Lord. But what he points out right here is, why is it that you don't believe? Why is it that you rejected him? Because he didn't do it your way. You rejected him because you wanted a political savior. You wanted freedom. You wanted all these things. And when he came and he died on a cross, he didn't look like the savior you wanted. And so you rejected him. You turned your back on him. But Peter says this was the plan and the foreknowledge of God. You can hate the truth, but it doesn't make it any less true. He's like, you can hate Jesus. It does not make him any less your savior. You can rebel against God all you want, but you can never unthrone him. So many people live their lives in rebellion against God, believing that I can live my life the way I want to. I don't need God. I don't need a Savior. I'll do whatever I want. He will not be the ruler of my life. But it doesn't matter how many times you say that. It doesn't make it true. Jesus is Lord. He is Savior. You can't unseat him off the throne, no matter how hard you try. Resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus is God, and because he's God, all authority in heaven and earth belong to him, which means he's our hope, he is our peace, he is our joy, he is our fulfillment, he is our strength and weakness, he is the fulfillment of everything we need in humanity. If you want to be good at pointing people to Jesus, then you've got to be good at listening to the emotions and the desires of your heart because you need to be able to show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of whatever that desire is. This is the key to what Peter's doing here in overcoming these emotional barriers. He's listening to the desires of the people's heart, and he's using the word to show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of every one of those desires. We all have people that we have relationships with that have those giant voids, and they just need to know that whatever it is they're desiring, Jesus is the answer to those desires. Whatever identity they find in that relationship, 
Jesus is better. Whatever comfort they find in that addiction, Jesus is better. Whatever hope they find in their status or their job or whatever it is, Jesus is better. Jesus is the better fulfillment of everything that we try to put in their lives to make up the difference. I had a hard conversation with a young man just a couple weeks ago who's struggling with homosexuality and same-sex attraction. He's starting to go down this path, and I'm like, you need to understand what you're desiring right now is you're desiring identity. You're desiring validation. You want to be a part of something, and you feel like this false connection is real, but it's not. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that you're desiring. Only Jesus will satisfy. And I promise, if you go down this road, it will destroy you. It will destroy your life. You will end up more broken than you began with, and you will be completely unfulfilled. It's what every one of us need to hear, and it's what we need to proclaim to the people in our lives, that whatever it is that they're finding fulfillment in, Jesus is the better answer to that. Next, we see Peter overcome their intellectual barriers. And what I mean by that, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying like, okay, people are dumb and you have to overcome intellectual barriers. That's not that. What I'm saying is he presents the gospel in a way they can understand. He presents it in a way that speaks to them. Let's look at verse 25. Begin there. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David didn't ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What he's saying is that if you value the word of David, if you were a Jew, if you were a Jew in this day, like these guys were, there is nothing more culturally relevant than King David. Like, we, we live in Alabama, and so I haven't found a way to share the gospel through the lyrics of Freebird yet, but if I could, it would, be, it would be something like this. Like, King David was the epitome of Jewish history. He was the greatest king. And so for him to present the gospel through the words of King David, it was like irrefutable evidence. It was the easiest way for them to understand what God was doing. So I want to break down this passage just a little bit. Verses 27 through 31, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him 
that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He's saying, if David said that you won't let your Holy One die and see corruption, and he's buried in a tomb, then he can't be talking about himself. So what's happening? It says that David was also a prophet, and David knew that the Messiah would come from his bloodline. And so what he's talking about is he foresaw the resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying because Jesus is risen, his body hasn't seen corruption. Therefore, the one that David has talked about, the one that David has prophesied about, is Jesus. Then again in verse 34 and 35, it says, For David didn't ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Again, he says, listen, if David is dead and buried, guess what he didn't do? He didn't ascend. But you know who did ascend 10 days ago? Jesus did. And of that, we're all witnesses. He's taking something that's culturally relevant to them, something they understand, and showing them through that the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I want us to look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In my opinion, this is the most important thing that Peter did to overcome their intellectual barriers because Peter didn't domesticate Jesus. Peter didn't water him down. Peter spoke boldly about who Jesus was. As Christians, I believe we need to get back to speaking about Jesus as a matter of fact and not a matter of opinion. Too many times we just kind of roll over and allow culture to dictate what we can say and what we can't say. Here Peter doesn't soft pedal the gospel. He says, Jesus is king, therefore people should submit to him. That's it, end of story. Jesus is Lord, he's worthy of your praise, he's worthy of submission. You're either in him or you're under his wrath and there's no in between. Psalm 2.12, it says, pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are happy. It's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a an opposing view. Not a contradiction, but we see two sides here. Where he says, pay homage to the Son, or his wrath will burn against you. But those who are in him are happy. We see both the righteousness and the justice of God, but we also see his mercy and his grace on the same end. One day, this merciful Jesus will rule with a rod of iron in every nation, and every ruler and every king will bow down in fear. Perhaps the best person who's ever illustrated that, anybody know of an author named C.S. Lewis? Some people nod their heads. Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Kids have probably watched it. It was a book first, just so you know. <clears throat> but there's this scene in the book where... Lucy, one of the kids, she comes to Mr. and Miss Beaver, one of the characters, and she's heard about this Aslan. And Aslan is a type of Christ in this book. And she comes and she asks about Aslan. And she goes, is, is he a man? And Miss Beaver goes, no, he's not a man. He's a king. And he's a lion. He's a great lion. He's the, the great lion, the king of beasts. And then Lucy kind of shrinks back and she goes, oh, I, I thought he was a man. She said, I, I would be scared, I think, to meet a lion. And she goes, yeah, you should be. 
No one can stand before a lion and not be scared. No one can stand before a lion and not be terrified. He's, he's awe-inspiring. He is that big and that magnificent. And so Lucy's trying to wrap her mind of, or around this Aslan, and she goes, well, is he safe? Then Mr. Beaver chimes in, and he goes, have you not heard anything she said? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. That's who Jesus is to us. Is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's not. He is awe-inspiring. We, we need to recover our awe and fear of the majesty of God in his greatness and his glory because he is. He is magnificent and he is terrifying and he is awe-inspiring, but he's also good and he's merciful and he's just. And because of that, we can trust him. This is the fear and awe that we need to walk in in the Lord. Finally, we see that the Spirit breaks down spiritual barriers. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The Holy Spirit gives us the power to do a lot of things, but changing the hearts of men isn't one of them. He gives us the power to prophesy. He, he gives us the power to, to love. He gives us the power to proclaim his word. He gives us the power to do a lot of things, but only he can change the hearts of men. We don't have that ability. John 16, 7 through 11, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Only the spirit can change the hearts of men, but it doesn't stop Peter from calling them to repent. Only the spirit can change the hearts of men, but it doesn't change our calling to go out into the world and call people to repentance. Look at verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want us, I want us to look at that. You know what precedes forgiveness? Repentance. There is no forgiveness without repentance. Repentance is turning from your sin and turning to God. You don't get to leave one foot outside. You don't get to dabble in your sin anymore. You turn from your sin to God. And that's where forgiveness is found. Why is that? Because you can't be a free man and a slave at the same time. You can't be a free man in Christ and still be a slave to sin. It's impossible. Verses 39 through 41, it says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. Revival begins with repentance. You can't have a revival without repentance. There has to be a turning from sin and a turning to God.
what's so powerful about this message is he's saying that, listen, Jesus is exclusive, but his salvation is universal. He is exclusive, but for those who are in him, there's nothing that separates you. Not gender, not race, not age. There is nothing. There is no one who is outside of the forgiveness of God. Verse 39, he says, For the promise was for you and for your children, for those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Forgiveness is for you. Forgiveness is for your children. Forgiveness is for those who are far off. Forgiveness is for the addict. Forgiveness is for those who are sick and those who are dying. This promise is for you. So, so many people have this idea that we talk about it, it seems like every Sunday, right? They have this idea that they have a checklist they have to go through before they can come to God. Well, I need to do this with the church, or I need to do this in my personal life, and I need to, I need to get off of this, and I need to be better at this. And then once I do all these checklists of things, then, then I'll be ready to come into God's grace. That's not the gospel. The gospel says repent, turn from your sin, turn to God, and you'll receive forgiveness. You'll receive forgiveness. And it's for you. This promise is for you. Whoever is reading these words, whoever hears these words, it's for you. It's for your children. It's for everyone who's far off. The gospel is for the world. I want us to turn to Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. you don't have these these passages underlined in your Bible or circled or something, I'd encourage you to do that. Because what we're about to read is, is what many people call the Romans road, but it is the easiest way that I know to present the gospel. It's sound, it's biblical, it's easy to understand. So what I've done in my Bible is I've highlighted these verses and then next to it, I've written the next verse that I go to from there. And so I, Romans 3.10, next to that verse, I've written Romans 3.23 because that's the next verse I'll go to after this. And I've given myself a way that I can open my Bible and sit down with anyone and talk about the plan of salvation. And so if you don't have that tool in your Bible, I'd, I'd encourage you to to either write these verses down or highlight these verses. But this is the gospel. Romans 3.10. And it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. So what does that mean? It means you can't earn it. You never can be good enough. No one is righteous. Even the cleanest person in church that you think has had their life together since day one, they are not righteous. They don't seek God. Romans 3.23, why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, even the best of us has sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. Nobody measures up. You do not have a righteousness of your own. Your only righteousness is in Jesus Christ alone. Next, Romans 6.23. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is he saying? He said the wages of sin is death. He just said that you're a sinner, so what does that mean? Death is what you deserve. But then there's this but God statement. But the free gift of God is eternal life. What we deserve is death, but what Jesus Christ offers us in him is eternal life. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means you didn't earn it. There's nothing that you brought to the table that made God decide, you know what, I think that guy's worth saving. No, he says, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. That means he doesn't do it because of anything you brought for the table. He does it out of who he is, out of his identity, not yours. It's his grace, his mercy alone for us. Nothing you can do can help you earn God's salvation. But the beautiful thing about that is that means there's nothing that you can do to out his grace. Because it's based on him, it's not based on you. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It means our salvation is found in Christ alone. Then Romans 8.38 For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It means that your salvation is secure. That if you're in Christ, you can't lose it. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God. Then finally, Romans 10.8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. It says, if you believe it in your heart, then confess it with your mouth, and you'll be saved. It's the simple gospel. No one's righteous. You can never earn it. But you don't have to because of who Jesus Christ is. And he died for us while we we're still sinners. And even though the wages of our sin is death, he gives us life eternal. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. If you believe it in your heart, confess it with your mouth, and you'll be saved. It's that simple. If you're here this morning and you don't know that promise, you haven't repented, you haven't turned from your sin, you haven't confessed Jesus as Lord, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm going to say exactly what Peter said. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. He says, honor the Son. You're not guaranteed another moment. You're not guaranteed another breath. You're not guaranteed another day. His mercy is for you. His promise is for you. If you're young, it's for you. If you're old, it's for you. If you're sick, it's for you. It doesn't matter your circumstances of your life. The gospel is for you. If you confess it with your mouth and you believe it in your heart, you'll be saved. If you haven't made that decision, then I encourage you, submit to the Lord today. Repent and turn and be saved. Also, maybe you've followed the Lord for a while and you've, just, you've never been baptized. 
I'd encourage you to do that. One is the first step of obedience that we, we see the Lord call us to do in all of Scripture. But secondly, you, you know what made baptism so hard for the Jews in this culture? It was as an act of humility. Because there was only two people that baptism was for. Baptism was for priests who were about to give their life in the service of God, and it was for Gentiles who were outside the family of God and were being brought in. And for those who were Gentiles, it meant that they were rejecting their old way of life to be a part of a new family. So whether you were going to be a priest or you were a Gentile, baptism meant that you were about to lose the life that you knew. Life as you knew it was no longer the same. You were about to give your life to Christ alone for his service, and you were being born into a new family. So maybe you've been a believer for a long time and you just haven't taken that step of obedience, I'd encourage you. Take that step of obedience, that public profession that you choose to follow Jesus. Salvation's for you, the promise is for you, and it's available in Christ alone. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're thankful for your word. Father, we, uh, we, we come to you today asking that if there's any that are here, that don't know the love of God, that don't know the forgiveness of sins, that that you would stir in their heart. Your Holy Spirit moves. We can't change the hearts of men. Only you can. But if we hear it and we understand it and we feel it, then it's your Holy Spirit who's moving. So we ask that your way would be done here. Father, I pray that you would encourage this church, that we would be built up. Father, I ask that whatever your Spirit leads us to do, that we would do that next step of obedience and we'd be faithful to say yes. In Jesus' name.